The sermon text this morning is Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. As many of you know, Carmen and I left our home country, the Philippines, about 30 years ago. Uh, When we left, we were not Christians, although we both thought we were. And after God gave us an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reality that people we knew from back home did not know this gospel started to concern us. But because we fly back so infrequently, we've had limited opportunities to share the gospel with them face to face. Social media, though, gives us the next best thing to speaking to our loved ones in person. And last year, I interacted with someone closely related to me There were events in this person's life that provided me with a good context in our conversation whereby I could talk about spiritual matters. I gave him the link to our church's webpage that contains a video explanation of the gospel. I don't know if he viewed it, but this was part of his response to me. He wrote this, Levy, don't worry about the faith I keep. Maybe it doesn't follow a certain church belief like what you have in your church with everything clearly stated, but it works for me. So it's all good. I guess God listens to everybody anyway. I always talk to Him without fail. I know you are doing a great job for the Lord, and I'm sure you will be rewarded in many ways. This response, of course, saddens me, but I'm sure this is not unique to me. I'm sure there are many of us here who have heard this type of response to the gospel from people that we care about. And what it reveals to us is the secret hope of every impenitent person in the world. The hope that everybody gets a free pass. This is a fatal misinterpretation of God's long-suffering patience with sin that makes one think that God's wrath is not a reality. And if it's real... It's unbecoming of a righteous God. But in our passage today, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that God is a perfectly righteous God and His judgment of wrath upon evil is a righteous judgment. His very character demands that sin and unholiness be dealt with. No sinner gets a get-out-of-jail-free card. But what does Scripture mean when it refers to God's righteousness? But God's righteousness refers to His absolute perfection in every characteristic that make Him who He is. Let me repeat that. God's righteousness 
refers to his absolute perfection in every characteristic that make him who he is. And, and just like breathing in 100% pure oxygen will kill us, this purity in him can be deadly to us. He is holy and we are not. And when the holy meets, meets the unholy, there's no question. It's the unholy that will be obliterated. God's wrath is his anger over his righteousness being violated. Now, before we explore our passage for today, which Miriam just read, let's establish its context by briefly reviewing what Paul wrote in the previous two chapters of Romans. So keep in mind that the central theme of the book of Romans is our justification through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, how can a man be made right with God, and what does it mean to be right with him? But Paul doesn't begin the book of Romans with the good news. Rather, he begins with the bad news. He starts off by giving an exposition of the law to show that every human being is in need of the gospel. In chapter 1, he said that even the pagan who doesn't have God's law nevertheless knows uh, God through two things. First, God's revelation of himself through nature, which is referred to by theologians as general revelation. And while nature's display cannot give us a complete understanding of who God is, it leaves no doubt as to his existence. And his eternal power, his divine nature, they're all around us when we look at nature. And the second means by which God uses to reveal himself is through the conscience that he gives every person. And that conscience gives everyone an awareness of what's right and wrong. And because of this, a pagan who does not have God's law is still accountable to him. And then in the middle of chapter 2, he addresses his fellow Jews, in particular, those who rely on a form of legalism or external righteousness. He lets them know that their reliance on a knowledge of God's law does not free them from the demands of the law either. He wrote in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, just as a review, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And as we heard from Miguel last week, chapter 2 concludes with Paul addressing the Old Testament Jewish ritual of circumcision, whereby he says that the outward reality of the practice is not worth anything unless there is a corresponding inward reality that is the circumcision of the heart. In fact, elsewhere, in Galatians 5, 6, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, this is where we pick up in chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul asks this question. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Well, considering how he ended chapter 2, one might expect Paul to say, there is no value in circumcision. There is no advantage of being a Jew. But that's not what he says in verse 2, in which he answers his own rhetorical question like this. Much in every way. There are tremendous advantages to being a Jew, not because of circumcision, but because, as he says in the last half of verse 2, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Because of this, it was in their midst that the means of grace 
was most heavily concentra- uh, concentrated. They had the written word of God, which during those times was the Old Testament. And the truth in the Old Testament testifies to the faithfulness of God. And the circumcision, circumcision was a token of that faithfulness of God. And it says, through the word of God, that hearts are quickened and awakened to saving faith. This was the supreme advantage that the Old Testament Jew had over the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Amorites, and many other tribes, including probably some lesser-known groups like the Stalactites, the Termites, the Uptites, and the Budlites. (laughs) But the Jews did not see their possession of the word as their advantage. Rather, they took pride in and relied on their heritage and external rituals such as circumcision. I mean, we might find it easy to sit in judgment of the Jews for not realizing what their true advantage as a nation was. But there are many ways that people who consider themselves to be Christians can act in the same way. Let me give some examples. For instance, it's a sad reality that there are people who put their trust in some equivalent of Old Testament Jewish circumcision. If Paul were writing today, he might ask, what's the value of church membership? Or what's the value of baptism? Or what's the value of church attendance? He would point out that the advantage that one has in living in this land doesn't lie in being baptized or being a member of a church or church attendance, but rather the many means by which the Word of God can be heard freely. From the pulpit, through printed Bibles, through modern mass communication like radio or TV, and so on. I mean, the gospel can be heard so many ways. The same gospel that Paul referred to earlier as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The availability of God's Word is a huge advantage that we have compared to other places in the world where Bibles are hard to come by or even prohibited. According to a survey conducted by LifeWay Research, 87% of American households own a Bible, and the average number of Bibles per home is three. But it also showed in that survey that owning a Bible does not necessarily mean it is being read. The Bibles being so easily availed of can become an inducer of casualness and laxity towards it. Now, regarding the matter of church attendance, one might ask, why should I go to church if doing so does not automatically save me? Well, where is one most likely to hear the gospel that will save that person? In the church. And to that, one might say, well, yeah. But I can also hear the gospel outside the church. That's true. It's not to say that the church is the only place to hear the gospel. But even if the church is not the only place one can hear the gospel, it is where the various means of God's grace are most heavenly, heavily concentrated. If only to hear the gospel consistently declared, there is great, even eternal value to church attendance. God can also empower His Word to accomplish the salvation of people, even in places that don't have the gospel correctly. Uh, Both Carmen and I grew up attending the Catholic Church. And during the Mass, which is the Catholic version of a worship service, Scripture is read several times. 
And after that, the priest gives a sermon, which is referred to as the homily. Sometimes the message of the homily is somewhat related to the scriptures read, but many times the two are totally unrelated. Even so, I will acknowledge that my attendance in those masses were profitable for me. Why? Because the word of God was read. And whenever the word of God is read, the Holy Spirit can use it to open people's eyes to the truth. Hearts of people can be quickened, not because of the preacher, but many times in spite of the preacher. The consistent hearing of God's word was the big advantage that Carmen and I and many others had growing up in the Philippines. God used it to prepare our hearts for the time when we will hear the true gospel. Now, I trust that those examples further clarify what Paul was declaring to his fellow Jews when he said, your advantage in being a Jew was because you were entrusted with the oracles of God. Similarly, any advantage that we have today is because we have, by God's grace, access to his word. Now, Paul continues in verses 3 and 4. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, even though one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, let me reread that question that Paul asked. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? The question almost makes you want to say, Duh. Of course it doesn't. God remains faithful and true, and nothing we can do or not do proves the contrary. And Paul emphatically answers his own question this way, by no means. In the King James Version, it translates it this way, God forbid. Or if Paul were alive today in contemporary vernacular, he'd say, no way, Jose. Yet Paul asks this rhetorical question because he wanted to expose the thinking of some Jews, that if people do not believe in the significance of the circumcision or in the oracles of God, somehow it makes the faithfulness of God without effect. Now, we should keep in mind in looking at this part of the passage that Paul is speaking to the Jews, a people God made a covenant with. The Jews broke that covenant time and again But God is one who will be faithful, even though individual Jews and the nation of Israel as a whole were unfaithful covenant breakers. Now, today, we can ask a similar question or similar questions like, if the majority of those who profess faith in Christ does not live out a life indicative of the faith, does it make all professions of faith in Christ meaningless? God's word declares in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And any false profession of faith does not affect God's faithfulness to those who truly believe in the truth of the gospel of Christ. And in the second part of verse 4, Paul emphasizes that God is true. And in fact, he is the very embodiment of truth. Even as the Lord Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the truth and not I can teach you the truth. On the other hand, he condemns not just some men, but all men as liars and promise breakers. We, we break our promises and lie to each other, but God cannot lie. 
because his very being and character are truth. And, and just because we do so does not mean that he does. Just because we ignore his word doesn't mean his word becomes worthless. And Paul warns us against allowing such thinking into our heads. Now, just a point of clarification. When Paul says, let God be true even though everyone were a liar, the part about everyone being a liar may sound like he is thinking of a hypothetical situation. That there is a possibility that not all men are liars. But just a few verses later, later he indicts both Jews and non-Jews. In other words, all of humanity that no one is righteous. And he says of people, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. He leaves no doubt that he is saying that all men are liars, as God says so in Scripture. And then Paul continues by quoting a passage from Psalm 51, verse 4, which is this, a familiar psalm of repentance by David following his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. In that section of the psalm that, David, uh, that Paul quoted, David wrote this, Against you, you only, have I sinned and ju- done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now in the first part of that verse, when David said that it was only against God that he had sinned, he is not denying or minimizing the effects of his sins on the people around him. In reality, there were many people affected by his wicked act. Consider Uriah and Bathsheba. He not only sinned against them, but against their entire households, siblings, parents on both sides. And David, as commander-in-chief of Israel's army, he violated every soldier under his command when he murdered Uriah. And as king... He sinned against everyone in the nation of Israel because he was supposed to manifest the righteous reign of God. And he did the exact opposite with his despicable actions. So with that, when he wrote this, what he wrote, was he minimizing the severity of his guilt when he said, only against God has he sinned? Is he saying, it's not a big deal since my sin was only against God? Not at all. Remember, David was under the influence of the Holy Spirit as he was writing this psalm. He, he understood that sin affected people on a horizontal level. But he also understood that there, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Because ultimately, sin is not sin unless it is a violation of God's law. He's using a hyperbole, stating that his guilt goes all the way to the highest of courts. He has violated the holiness of God. And that's another, that's another manifestation of true repentance that we see here in David. The recognition that even as our sins effects are more far-reaching horizontally than we can imagine, ultimately and primarily, it is God whom we have sinned against. Now David also understood that if God responds to his actions according to the law, And according to God's righteous character, God has every right to administer punishment in whatever way he chooses so. And David throws himself at the mercy of the court, as it were. 
And Paul is saying, that's true for all of us. Whatever or whoever else we think should be to blame for our sins, we are ultimately responsible and all, uh, answerable to God. He is a just judge. And so when we are called to account for our lives, He is perfectly justified in sending us away from His presence and into the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. If we don't realize that, if we don't realize that, we have never really understood the depth and the gravity of our sin, nor do we understand God's holiness and righteousness. And that's what Paul is getting at in verse 4. God is a God of justice. Therefore, he calls people to reflect that aspect of his character in the way we treat each other. He spoke of this many times to the nation of Israel through the Old Testament prophet, prophets. In Isaiah 61.8, it says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. In Micah 6.8, we read, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. In the book of Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty said, Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Now, we live in a fallen world where justice is imperfect. Each and every one of us has experienced some form of injustice, and we have all likewise inflicted harm on other people. I mean, we can be falsely accused of things we have never done, and we have been guilty of giving false accusations as well. We have been subjected to slander, and we have likewise slandered others. We are not without recourse, though. God's word does give us the right to remediate a wrong, to confront wrongdoers, even to go to the church and to those in the state who are tasked to administer justice. But we all know that not everything is set right in this life. And if we are at the wrong end of an injustice, and it is God's will that it stay unresolved, we can go to Him and for the, uh, for the strength, ask for the strength to endure and ask Him to reveal to us, if it is in His will, what He has in mind for us. But one thing we should not do is accuse God of being unjust or unfair because we have been treated unjustly or unfairly by other people. It's like having my children go wayward and people asking, what's wrong with Levi and Carmen? And just to be clear, that's a hypothetical example. <laughs> my children have not gone wayward, although they do crazy things every now and then. Not all of you are laughing. Just for the record, that was a joke. <laughs> anyway, we who are God's creation do not rise to the level of His righteousness. But the fact that we are unrighteous does not implicate God or question His righteousness. What we should never forget is no matter the gravity of the injustice that any of us receive, it's not worth comparing to the grace and mercy by which we are covered by God in the forgiveness of our sins, including our own unjust treatment of others. God does not owe us grace or mercy. And without these, God is perfectly justified to condemn us for eternity when He calls us to account for our lives. That's what Paul is saying in verse 4. And if we are not convinced that God is indeed righteous in His punishment of sin, then we do not understand just how holy God is and how grave our sins are. As Tom mentioned a couple of weeks back, 
we forget the reality of God's judgment. And that's because oftentimes we, the church, are so busy judging the world. But we are not called to do that. The church is to judge the church. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we leave it to God to judge the world. Paul continues in verses 5 and 6. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? What Paul is saying when he said our unrighteousness shows the righteousness of God is that when we sin, we demonstrate God's righteousness even if it is only by contrast. It's like the illustration that we've heard so many times of a black background that serves to highlight the brilliance, the beauty of a diamond. God's righteousness is the standard by which we judge whether something is right or wrong. How else could we recognize sin for what it is if we did not have a standard by which to judge it? These days, being intolerant means being guilty of a major societal sin. It means that one is an arrogant bigot who thinks that he or she is better than everyone else. Perhaps some of us are not old enough to have an awareness of how the the change in the meaning of the word tolerant took place slowly but surely. It used to be that if two people tolerated each other, it meant that they believed two different things, but they still got along in spite of their difference. They tolerated each other's views being different. Nowadays, to be tolerant means something altogether different. The new tolerance says that if I'm to be tolerant, it means that if someone has ideas that are different, even diametrically opposed to mine, I have to say that our ideas are equally true. According to the new tolerance, what I believe is true to me, what the other person believes is true to him, but that's not all. These days, if you take a position that injures another person, you dare not say it, even if it's the truth. So the new tolerance, in many instances, muzzles the truth from being spoken. This idea has come to be known as moral relativism, and the core belief of the moral relativist is that there are no absolutes. There are no absolutes. But even the moral relativist, relativist will be the first to cry, Foul! when he is wronged. If you encounter a moral relativist and you kick him in the shin, how do you think he will react? Will he say, that hurt, but that's okay because you, you believe that it's right? I don't think so. I think what he will say after he says, ow, will be some form of, you shouldn't do that. And when the ought or should, language comes out, they are appealing to a higher authority whether they recognize it or not. And what made that happen, what demonstrated God's absolute standard of righteousness was my kick to that person's shin. But to Paul's point, it doesn't mean I should uh, keep, I should say, kicking shins just to demonstrate God's righteousness. Paul recognized in the twisted logic of sin-tainted minds, we might begin to think that since God is glorified in our sinfulness, we might as well continue to sin that grace may abound. And if that's the case, Paul continues, how can God judge the world? 
If God is unjust for inflicting wrath, He should never be able to judge the world. Yet to the culture, and sadly to many in the church, the idea that God is capable of judging people by pouring out His wrath is so repugnantly unjust. So much so that we develop a cavalier attitude towards sin and often makes excuses for our sinfulness. Excuses that might sound like, oh, boys will be boys. Or, I'm only human. Or, nobody's perfect. Or, we all make mistakes. Now, I'm not picking on anybody who says these phrases. Please understand. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying that we have to be careful that if and when we do, we're not making excuses for sin or questioning God's righteous judgment. We do well to remember that it is because God is righteous that He is wrathful. His wrath is not a manifestation of unrighteousness, but rather a manifestation of the fullness and perfection of the righteousness that is in Him. Paul continues in verse 7. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Or to rephrase the question, if by my sinning God's glory is made much of, why should I still be punished for my sin? I saw an entry in the internet discussion site Reddit, wherein the author, a college student, was expressing his frustration over a friend's explanation of his bad behavior. The entry reads, and I quote, I was walking with a friend on my college campus about a month back when he started kicking over some posts put up to keep people off the grass. I got really frustrated with him and told him to stop. His response, why? It's fun. I tried to explain to him that the groundskeeper would now have to come by and replace all of those. He then proceeded to rant to me about how that's the groundskeeper's job and how he was actually helping the groundskeeper by kicking those things over. His basic idea was that he was doing a service by being destructive. The groundskeeper wouldn't have a job if I didn't make a mess for him to clean up, said my friend. Unquote. Is that not warp justification of bad behavior? It's silly and infuriating at the same time. It's the kind of twisted logic that a person uses when God says God has no right to punish sin because sin makes us appreciate His goodness more. Growing up, I listened quite a bit to a rock offer that I've referred to in the past that came out in the early 70s and was extremely popular. Let me mention the title and see if you recognize it. Jesus Christ Superstar. If you recognize it, then you and I belong to an age bracket of people whose annual physical needs to include carbon dating. (laughs) The musical had many controversial messages, including the questioning of the necessity and purpose of Jesus' death. But just to be clear, I'm not endorsing it as something to listen in order to build up your faith. But for myself, I credit it with the impetus to ask some hard questions. One of the things I struggled with was the way the musical portrayed Judas as a hero who shouldn't be condemned because he was merely a pawn 
that was instrumental in making God's plans come to pass. This was a recurring theme in the musical. You can almost hear Judas say something like this. The best thing that ever happened to the world was the crucifixion of Jesus. If it weren't for me, there would be no atonement. I, shouldn't, I should be commended and thanked because I fulfilled Scripture and delivered Jesus into the hands of the Gentiles. God has no right to judge me as the sinner. Can you imagine Judas saying that when he comes in front of uh, the, God's throne? It's that kind of justification for sin that Paul is condemning in verse 7. And I hope you see that, that, thi- that thinking along those lines are an affront to God's righteousness. But Paul continues in verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, the condemnation is just. In many places in Scripture, Paul said that the law cannot save. And that it is by God's grace alone, by faith alone, that we are justified. Paul was so enamored by the primacy of God's grace and the sweetness of the gospel that he was accused of despising and dispensing with the law of God. But Paul never denied God's law. Rather, he understood the proper relationship between the law of God and the gospel of God. He knew that while the law of God does not save, because we can never fulfill its demands, it nevertheless gives us a proper understanding of the holiness of God and our need for grace. There was no room in Paul's theology for a person who claims Christ as a savior and then boldly lives a sinful life. These days, sometimes those people are called carnal Christians. He never said that the law has been completely dispensed with and was no longer binding to the Christian. He never said, do evil that good may come. And he pronounced that those who twisted his words in this manner will be condemned and justly justly so. Now, at this point, I'd like to try and recap what Paul is saying in our passage today. Let's keep in mind that he's continuing what he began in the middle of chapter 1, in which he started to expound on the dark, desperate condition of humanity and how we suppress the truth of God's existence, even though creation displays his power and our conscience testifies to his law. And as punishment for sin, God withdraws his presence from people and allows them to sin more and more, leading to a downward spiral that culminates in a debased mind. And Paul challenges Jews who think they can escape God's wrath by virtue of their being people of the circumcision covenant, pointing out that it is not by mere externalities that one is justified, rather the inward reality of a heart renewed by the Spirit. Just as it is not one who hears the law, but rather those who obey the law who will be justified. And no one, no one obeys God's law perfectly, except for our Lord. In our passage for today, Paul then addressed those who might accuse God of unrighteousness. He talks about how God's wrath on sin is not really an indication of any unrighteousness in him, but rather it is his righteous and just nature that demands that he unleash his wrath on unrighteousness. And no one can say that since our unrighteousness serves to show his righteousness, we are putting God in a good light and therefore don't deserve to go to hell. The Apostle Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, gives us these dark, assessments of the human condition 
I must say that these are very sobering passages to preach through. Messages that you will not find in any motivational CD. It will not sell. But again, might I remind you that all these pronouncements of despair, all these bad tidings will serve to highlight the beauty and the sweetness of the gospel. And I hope that like me, you couldn't wait until we get to the upcoming passages and chapters wherein Paul begins to explain how we can be made right before a perfectly righteous God. Beginning with Romans 3.21, we will be told that there is a righteousness that has been revealed apart from the law. A righteousness revealed apart from the law. That reconciliation with God was accomplished by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who was perfect in every way, but was judged for our sin, even though he himself was without sin. In chapter 4 of Romans, Paul then tells us that Abraham was considered righteous by God because he believed in God. That has not changed. Today, we can be justified before God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was God incarnate. The way that, that people were made righteous in the Old Testament is the same as it is today. That we have faith and believe in the Word of God. And then in chapter 5, we will be told about this new life that we have through the Holy Spirit. I can't wait. I can't wait. And we can all look forward to those upcoming chapters being preached from this pulpit. I would like to close by speaking to anyone here who for one reason or another has rejected the claims of Christ. If you feel a recognition deep down in your heart of hearts that you, are des- that you desperately want to be reconciled with God, speak to me or any member of our church, perhaps one sitting next to you after the service to explain the gospel to you. God sovereignly brought you here this morning for a reason. It's not by accident. Perhaps you are struggling with the idea of a righteous God that judges And I hope you see from this passage today that God's wrath does not make him unrighteous. But it is precisely because he is perfectly righteous that he pours his wrath on sin. Perhaps you have said, I can't accept a God of wrath. But this is part and parcel of how God reveals his righteousness. I would ask you, if you struggle with this, consider all the untold millions of people who have suffered gross injustice and evil at the hands of others, and who can never be recompensed in this life. Deep inside, we, we all know that somehow all those injustices should be made right. How can we accept a God who will overlook evil and just say, let bygones be bygones, or say to err is, hum- or err is human, to forgive is divine? I think we will have more objections to that kind of a God. Because we see the harm that we can cause on others, we need a God of perfect righteousness and justice. God's wrath is an expression of His righteousness. And instead of rejecting God, I'm speaking to you now, consider His offer of reconciliation that He made possible by pouring out His wrath on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified and punished in our place. So again, I plead with anyone here who has rejected the claims of Christ, that if today you are hearing God's voice to come to Him, don't harden your heart. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved from His righteous wrath.
At this point, I'd like to, for us to just take a couple of minutes in silence to reflect on, on this word and, and confess to God, if give thanks, perhaps even acknowledge Jesus Christ for who he is from where you're sitting. Um, let's take a couple of minutes in silence and I'll close this in prayer. <laughs>